So if you have your Bibles, if you uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 through 21, and finishing up our study on 1 Timothy, and, and next week, Lord willing, um, we'll, be, we'll be looking at uh, uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll begin our study this morning. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your presence here this morning. Uh, we, we present our hearts to you and our minds to you, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us in a way that uh, transforms our inner man, that we could be more like Christ, and, Lord, that you would do a, just a solid work in our hearts and in our lives from the inside out. And so, Lord, be... Um, honored here this morning as we uh, study your word. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we come to the end of uh, 1 Timothy, and we are looking at verse 17. Paul writes this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So when we come to this and, and give some consideration to the historical context, we know that Ephesus was a, uh, was a wealthy was a wealthy city it was at the crossroads of of trade uh, it really it had the first banking system uh, had a library had an outdoor kind of uh, uh, entertainment area uh, it was uh, temple of Diana I mean it was the happening place in, in Asia Minor and because it was such a wealthy city there were uh, members of the church at Ephesus that, that were very wealthy. And so Paul comes uh, to give them a couple commands, uh, what we would call imperatives. He comes and says to them that, that not to be haughty or conceited and to think that your identity comes from your wealth. And there's a lot that we could say about that, that uh, some people that are wealthy, it, it hasn't come by hard work or, or, or intellect or, or anything that they've done themselves, they, we could say this in simple terms, they were at the right place at the right time, or they inherited their money, or they just were living in a house like, like many of us that bought houses in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, and we buy a house for, what, $120,000, and all of a sudden, you know, the house is worth $600,000. And so, so Paul says to people that are wealthy, he goes, you know, don't, don't become arrogant. Don't become arrogant about that, but to, to use the wealth that you've had to do the good and to understand that, that you'll face Christ at the Bema seat, not that your salvation is in jeopardy, but you'll face Christ and you'll, you'll give an account uh, for what you did with what the Lord gave you, and the Lord will 
take a good look at you and say, this is what I gave you, and, and this is what you did with it. Now, this is an excellent text uh, uh, for the pastor to uh, dispense a healthy measure of guilt and uh, uh, kind of drive home the point of you must obey and you must give. Now, uh, I'm, I'm not beyond using guilt. I, I've done it a few times, but, um, but it doesn't produce lasting results. It produces results for about two or three weeks. Now, the church treasurer gets all excited about that because he sees the spike in giving and says, oh, finally, we can, we can do this or that. But it, it, it doesn't guilt or, or just kind of responding to, to that from an external point of view doesn't really produce uh, the fruit that's long-lasting. And so what I'd like to encourage you to think about for a moment, what does produce fruit that lasts in your life? What, what does bring forth godliness in your life? And when we drill down a little bit deeper and get beyond the imperative, get beyond the command, Paul doesn't leave us lacking for an answer. So in the same chapter... If you look at chapter 6, verse 6, you see the, the key to really achieving uh, a desire or a heart to do good, or really getting at a heart that's generous, in other words, being a generous giver to what the Lord's provided you, you find the key to that really not, not so much in the external the imperative, although it is a command, but you find, uh, if you drill down a little bit, you find that if we want to become a generous giver, we need to be changed first from the inside, experience Christ's transformation on the inside, and the outside of that is a generous giver. It's kind of like baptism, that when we get saved, come to a saving faith in Christ, which is where? Where, where does that work take place? On the inside. And so the outside fruit, the outside response of obedience is baptism. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes this. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, contentment is something that, that happens, from the, happens from the inside out. And it's the key to become a generous person. Because if you have found your center in Christ, if you have found your satisfaction in Christ, if he has satisfied the deepest aspects of your heart and your life, then out of, the, out of that comes a desire to be generous with what the Lord's given you. Now, we've been using this definition uh, actually from... Uh, this definition of contentment comes from 1648, a little, little while ago, by this guy by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And that is a work of the heart. So what is contentment? What leads to being a generous giver and doing good works? Well, contentment is a disposition of heart. It's an inner work of grace. 
It's, it's that, as the psalmist would say in Psalm 62, verse 1, and 62, verse 5, my, my, soul, my soul waits for the Lord. And when we, have, uh, when we have experienced regeneration in our life, when we have experienced a disposition of a heart, or we could use New Testament language out of John chapter 15, which is abiding, which is abiding in Christ... When we experience regeneration and salvation and come to faith in Christ, our heart is only satisfied really in one place, and that's knowing Christ and having him be the center of our affections. If Christ is the center of your affections, if you find your satisfaction in in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, then we come to the imperatives at the end where, where Paul says, tell the rich to not to be haughty and not to be prideful, but to be generous and to do good works. If Christ is at the center of our life and we find our satisfaction in him, then to do good works and to give away what God has given us, that becomes the natural byproduct of a transformed heart. And so do we want to issue the imperative? Certainly we're issuing the imperative. But if we want to get there, if we want a lifestyle of generosity, then finding our satisfaction, or, or another term for that, is our contentment that Paul uses in Philippians 4. No matter what state I found myself in, whether I abound or I'm abased, whether I have much or whether I have little, he's found contentment in Christ. And because of that, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Out of that core of having Christ be the center. When we look at contentment, what contentment uh, embraces, what contentment uh, gives meaning to, is that in the midst of our affliction, we can be content because contentment flows from the inside and is not subject to external circumstances. So when we're afflicted, it's not something we'd sign up for, but in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, what does Christ say? He says, anybody that follows me is going to pick up his cross, right? And do what? Follow me. And so if the center is Christ, even in affliction, we can be centered and have a sense of his peace and have a sense of uh, his hand upon our life. Contentment doesn't mean that we can't cry out for help. The psalmist over and over again, in Psalm like 102, 103, he's crying out to the Lord. Contentment means that we can cry out to the Lord. Contentment means that we can ask for help. Would you help me? I'm in a desperate situation. Doesn't mean we're uncontent. It doesn't mean if we're content that we shouldn't desire to grow and improve ourselves. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't go for that next degree. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't take that, um, take that next job opportunity. Contentment doesn't mean that we, we sit back and don't improve ourselves. That's called what? Laziness. Ooh, you guys got a handle on this. So to be content is to have the core of our being satisfied with Christ. Doesn't mean we shouldn't make the most of our life. Doesn't mean that we should sit in a dead-end job for 10 years and, and not take a step forward in faith with our life because somehow we must be what? 
Content, that's a false contentment. The Lord calls us to use the things that he's given us for the good of others. And sometimes, we, sometimes that requires a, a job move. Some that, sometimes that requires you applying for a master's degree. Sometimes that, that requires you to, to face the dissertation of a PhD or, or an advanced degree. Contentment is about having Christ at the center of our life and using our life for the glory of God, not subject to the circumstances that world around us. Contentment is not this. Contentment is not murmuring. Contentment is not rebellion. Down south, they call it this, fretting. That's not contentment. When you fret and when you're murmuring, when you're in rebellion, you have a poor view of God. Because Paul says, whether I abound or I abased, I can do what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he, Christ, is at the center. He, Christ, is at the center of your affections. And he satisfies you. And so come back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for a minute. Paul says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be prideful, nor to put their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us everything for what? To enjoy. What's Paul saying here? He's countering the Gnostics of his day, who are separating spiritual from physical. In other words, Paul unifies the two, honor of God. And so if God has given you wealth and God has given you resources, then use those resources for the good of others and find meaning in advancing the kingdom of God and enjoy what God has given you for his glory and, and, and his honor. And if you do that, if you do that out of a Christ-centeredness, as you do that out of finding your satisfaction and your joy in Christ, you do that out of a willing spirit and out of a heart that has been transformed and it'll last the rest of your life. So when we're dealing with our young people, when we're raising up our, our peeps, you know, our children and our grandchildren, what we want is not external conformity, but the transformation of the heart. Because it's out of a transformed heart that we that we're generous. It's out of a transformed heart that we're gracious. It's out of a transformed heart that we pursue the Lord. It's out of a transformed heart that we, that our deepest desire of our life is to use our life to glorify Christ. And so let our hearts, let our hearts be changed. And we won't have any problem with giving or tithing. The church won't have any problem with its budget because people are uh, transformed people are generous people. And so let Christ transform our hearts. Let Christ transform our minds. We come to the second aspect of this final uh, uh, charge to Timothy. And he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge or pseudo-knowledge, which is Paul's, Paul's um, 
specifically drilling down on the Gnostics of his day. And what's, what's critical here is Timothy's, Timothy's call to guard something. What is that something? That something is the good doctrine that he's received. It's about Jesus, about the gospel. And he says, guard this thing in a particular way. He says, don't have anything to do with this, but give yourself to that good doctrine. Think about that a little bit. What does that require if we are to guard the gospel message that God has given us? What, what is, like we drill down a little deeper on saying, well, we could certainly get up here and use some guilt and we could increase the budget for a couple weeks, but that's not going to help you and it's not going to help me. It's not going to help the kingdom. It's not going to help your kiddos. So we need to learn contentment. We need to be transformed from the inside out. So ask yourself, what is the transformational thing that has to happen here that will allow Timothy to guard the deposit that's in his heart? Ask the deeper question. And the, and the key here is that he guards his mind. In other words, Paul says, Paul says, do not let... Do not let certain things into your mind, right? He says, reject those things. And what does he tell them? What does Paul tell Timothy to reject? The babble and the, the Gnosticism and the uh, Jewish legalism. He's saying, don't let those things into your mind. Don't go there. But let, let the true word, let Christ come into your mind and your heart. Come with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would, for a minute. Paul gives the imperative to guard the deposit that has been given to him, that keeping, uh, keeping the gospel, keeping that good doctrine. Second, what did I say? First Corinthians? Did I say second? I thought first, but I said, did you just say first? It's a little confusing thing if you drink too much coffee in the morning. So second Corinthians chapter 10. And, and look at, the, look at the, the spiritual dynamic that's required to guard. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we could look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and do what? Take every thought captive and do what with it? Bring it into obedience to Christ. Bring it under the word of God. And so for, for Timothy, he, for, for him to be effective in ministry, to him to be effective in life, he has to reject certain things and receive certain things. And the same is true with you and I. Over the last couple years, there's been a common question, the common uh, distress that, that's that people have been dealing with. They're just, people are so upset of, the, of what's happening in the political sphere. And they're just, people have just gotten caught up with that. And, the, and, and you get a lot of angry people around. And they say, like, how, Pastor, how can I, how can I deal with that? I, I give them a simple remedy. I say, stop watching the news. Stop watching them all, whether they're this one or that one or in the middle. Stop. And they, and they say, well, well I, 
I, I need to be informed. I said, read the print. Just read the print. You'll get the news without the emotional spikes. Because the news nowadays is designed to generate discontentment, designed to, well, who said that? Anxiety, stress, and anger, and it's all what? Got to do this. Fake news. <laughs> it doesn't matter where it's coming from. You say, well, you just offended me. Well, you stick around. I'm going to offend the left, and I'll offend the right, and I'm going to offend everybody. And so we need to guard our minds from the constant barrage of either discontentment. Like, do you know, like, like I really like this. Like, this is very functional. This is like a mobile office. But this, you know, it's only a seven. It's only a seven. And it's a small seven. So I go talk to my son, Timothy. He's got the latest. He's got the biggest. And he's watching the football game on it. Like, oh, I want one of those. But this works for me. There's nothing that I can't do on the seven. Well, there is, so. But the 11's coming out. I have to have it. <laughs> the text says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them to give to the 11 fund. <laughs> so the pastor can be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. It's in First Edward. So our world is designed... Our world is designed to bring a discontentment. It, the, the, this whole thing is as ancient as Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says to the, his early, early followers, don't be anxious what you'll eat or what you drink or, or the clothes you wear. Because our heavenly, we have a heavenly Father who takes care of even the sparrows, the birds of the year. So, you know, and, and Jesus goes, tells them this, he goes, the pagans, the pagans run after those things. And he calls for a trust, a trust in a good God who provides what we need. Our, our world is geared towards causing discontentment and anxiety. And the remedy for that is in our hands. We need to guard our mind, as the Apostle Paul says Timothy. He says, don't let in all that babbling and false doctrine, but, but let the center be Christ. He, he ends with that, grace, grace be with you. And when we transition over, follow into 2 Timothy, this truth about contentment and having Christ at the center is foundational to understanding 2 Timothy. Because 2 Timothy is, is Paul's last will and testament. <laughs> and it doesn't end well. Everybody leaves him. Church leaders go, are going off the rails. Everybody has forsaken him. 
except Christ is at the center of the Apostle Paul. And because Christ is at the center, he can do all things through him who strengthens him. And so there's imperatives here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. I'd like you to go a little deeper and let Christ transform your life. For if he transforms your heart, then these external things, they just come, they come out of the new birth, come out of our new identity in Christ. And they're not motivated by guilt, but they're motivated out of a changed and a transformed heart. We need to guard our minds. Reject certain things, allow certain things into our life. And then Paul says to them, grace. Grace be with you. Amen? We're going to close by a very practical thing. There's two things of our closing this morning. Um, I'm going to ask Joe Perella to come, and, and Joe's going to give you an excellent application. Um, uh, I'll let him speak, and then Natasha's going to come and close us with... Uh, with a worship song and prayer. So God bless you. Thanks for coming. I hope you enjoy the day. It's awesome out there. What are you going to wear if you go kayaking? Life jacket. Life jacket. Don't want to do any, no funerals for young people that don't wear a life jacket. So wear your life jacket. God bless you. Okay, Jack, let's play the video. Most stories that have a happy ending don't feel like it along the way. We borrowed for everything. Want a new couch? Go finance it. Want a new TV? Go finance it. Want a new car? Go finance it. My whole philosophy was credit cards. I'll just work another week. <sighs> Swipe the card. Everything kind of started to crash. We started to see our marriage drop away. I personally owed $750,000 in debt. I was totally hopeless. You need to decide if you want to be wealthy or if you want to look wealthy. When somebody told me about FPU, I grabbed hold of it like a life preserver. It gave me hope that we could make our marriage work. Knowing where your money's going is a huge life changer. Nobody owns me anymore. Nobody. It just opened up communication big time. All of a sudden, we were back together on a crusade. We changed our family tree. I'm here to do my debt-free screen. Yeah, how much have you paid off? Four hundred and fifty-six thousand. Eighty-nine thousand. One hundred and twenty thousand. Three hundred ninety-four thousand dollars. Three, two, two one. one. This financial peace stuff is working. People are getting out of debt and they're becoming millionaires. We are the first generation that are millionaires. And we've given more than we ever imagined we could yeah. give. I now have a net worth of $1.7 million. Hope is real. Okay, so... Money is the number one cause of marital fights. And if you want to have contentment in your life, you need to learn how to handle your finances according to Scripture. And so we have a class that will help you do that. It's called Financial Peace University. It's a nine-week class taught by Dave Ramsey on the video. And then we have a one-hour discussion period afterward, which is the accountability part to help keep you on track. 
And so far, um, we've had nine classes at this church. We've had 113 people attend. They've saved $102,536 and paid off $218,657 in debt. So the system works. Um, we're going to be starting another class in October, second week of October. If you're interested in it, come see me after service, and we'll get you hooked up. Okay? Thank you.